for a woman's vaginal flora, that should also be acidic. And if it's not, you're going to see more urinary tract infections. You're going to see more bacterial vaginosis. You're going to see more yeast infections as well. So we will use boric acid suppositories, uh, or we will use a clove of garlic, uh, unpeeled, depending on what a woman chooses to do. And we only need to do that for a day or two. Like that's very, very potent, and that's going to kill a lot of bacteria there. Hey guys, welcome back to the Digest This Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Cameron. And today I have Dr. Stephen Cabral on the show. He is a naturopath, Ayurvedic, and functional medicine practitioner. And after going through severe health complications at the age of 17 and on antibiotics for three years straight, he saw 50 different doctors, tried over 100 different treatment protocols, and finally found freedom and healing through a holistic approach and is now here today to share his knowledge on topics from getting your period back to chronic UTIs, intermittent fasting, seed cycling, gut health, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Save this episode because you're going to want to refer back to it time and time again. Hey guys, I actually need to tell you that if you're not subscribed to my newsletters, they come out every Friday and they're called Friday Finds. This is information that only my subscribers get in their inbox. I share new food finds I don't share on Instagram, food news, food trends, and products that aren't even on the market yet, but I've got the scoop. I also share special discounts and other recipes throughout the week. Again, only to my newsletter subscribers. This is not published anywhere else and cannot be found on my blog. I do not and never have shared any of your information. This is just another way to stay connected. So be sure you're in the know and subscribe to my weekly newsletters by going to littlesipper.com slash subscribe and enter your email. That's it. So pause this episode and go to L-I-L-S-I-P-P-E-R.com slash subscribe. If you want a $200 Amazon gift card, all you have to do is give this show a five-star rating and review, and I'll be sending someone this special gift. Just be sure to include your Instagram handle at the end of the review because that is the way I will be reaching out and perhaps sliding into your DMs. So pause this episode and rate and review for your chance to get a $200 Amazon gift card. Turns out, Everything you think you knew about probiotics may be wrong. It can get pretty confusing with the market saturated with probiotic everything. Let me give you my personal take and share what I got introduced to back in October. Seeds DS01 plant-based capsule is not only a probiotic, but a prebiotic. There are 24 strains of specifically formulated probiotics targeted for digestive health, gut immunity, as well as additional systemic benefits. There's actually a prebiotic capsule encapsulating the probiotic inside, which ensures that the probiotics actually make it to your colon with 100% survivability to do its job. 
Many think of pre and probiotics as only gut support. It does support the gut barrier, but Seeds DS01 also supports other areas of the body for whole body benefits, skin health, heart health, and micronutrient synthesis. Healthy regularity and an ease of bloating are just a few other common perks you may experience So if you want something to help balance out your bowels and start a new healthy habit for the new year and your life, visit seed.com slash digest20 and use code digest20 to redeem 20% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for coming on the show. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So before I start asking you all sorts of different questions that I'm sure everyone can relate to, can you please just introduce yourself and give people a little bit of a history on your own um, medical journey and how you came to the place you are today and why you take a more holistic approach to healing in the medical space? Yeah, absolutely. And so for me, it, it dates back now about 25 years or so, a little bit more now. But in the late 90s, I was a teenager in high school and it was my senior year. And, you know, like most teenagers, you're stressed, you're thinking about going to college and leaving your friends and all those things. So I had that stress component of it. And I think it's important to talk about that because, you know, sometimes we're all in a place that isn't the best and stress is a thing that puts us, tips us over the edge. But usually there's a pre-existing condition. Well, the problem was I grew up like most kids, you know, drinking sugary-based beverages, artificial sweeteners, and eating all sorts of fried foods and all these things that were bad for me. But I was also taking antibiotics for the past three years. And that was for acne. So when you go to the dermatologist, some dermatologists, at least they did, they would give you amoxicillin and you would take it essentially twice a day. And lo and behold, if it's bacterial-based acne, it clears up the acne. Uh, What I didn't know is that after taking 3,000 capsules of amoxicillin, it would essentially destroy your gut bacteria and your gut permeability. And for me, it led to a complete shutting down of my immune system, which eventually led to Addison's disease, type 2 diabetes as a repercussion of Addison's since I wasn't able to produce cortisol. My, my body was not able to react to the highs in blood sugar or especially the lows in blood sugar. And so there would be extremes all the time. So I would deal with brain fog and lethargy and low mood and depression and shaking and sweats and all these things uh, from an endocrinological level, a hormone level. Um, And then I ended up with an autoimmune disease as well from all that gut-based permeability and bacteria with rheumatoid arthritis. So besides the POTS and the mast cell activation syndrome and the insomnia, the allergies, I had some real serious life-threatening illnesses. And um, it took me a long time to get over those because this is the Late 90s, early 2000s, we didn't have the spread of information. There was no social media. Uh, There was just books. And so I read a lot of books. I went to a lot of practitioners. And uh, to make a long, long story, just a little bit shorter, I met my mentor around 27 years old. And after 10 years of relapsing, getting better and relapsing, getting better, relapsing, she helped me combine state-of-the-art at-home lab testing, functional medicine, with Ayurvedic medicine, and, um, and my genetics. And once I did that, I was better within six months and I've never looked back. Wow, what a story. Now, I want to kind of go back a little bit here and 
I want to confirm you were on antibiotics for three years, taking them daily? Every morning and every night, I would take amoxicillin. That's right. Every single day for three years. And if anyone has taken antibiotics uh, just for a week after that week, you know your gut is a wreck. So I can't even imagine how you were physically feeling. And obviously it brought on so many other diseases that you had just mentioned. So what, what was your breaking point? Like, what was it when you were just like, I'm done after three years, what made you turn? Well, I, I got extremely sick. So I, I woke up in November. Uh, by then my, my body was decimated, but I hadn't, as they say, you know, overflowed that rain barrel quite yet. And then I woke up uh, one morning and all the glands in my body were swollen. So if you've ever gotten swollen glands in your neck, well, you know, those are your lymph nodes, but you have lymph nodes all over your body, in the armpits, in your groin, behind your knees, um, around the inguinal cleft. And so everything was swollen and my tongue was swollen and my body had just, it was done. And so what happened was my immune system at that point was very imbalanced. So there's a thing called TH1 and TH2 immunity. And my TH1 side of my immune system, kind of like that innate response, my secretory IgA was a zero. So that meant I could no longer fight off any viruses or bacteria coming into my body. So there's no first line defense. Secretory IgA is just immunoglobulin A, and it's, it's basically your first line defense. Why some people, they catch the same virus as everybody else, but they don't really have any symptoms because they kill it really right away. And again, it's, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but close enough. And the TH2 is more the allergies and asthma and the skin rashes, the migraines, the brain fog, those types of things. And um, so when they looked at my blood work that day, because I was, you know, clearly there was something wrong with me, the unfortunate thing about conventional medicine is all they found was that I had elevated white blood cells. They had no idea what was wrong with me. It took two years to get a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis, um, Addison's disease, because they would never test for that in a 17-year-old. Like that just mm -hmm. typically wouldn't happen. Who's not presenting with any of those things? Because like I was functioning, I could speak, I could do all those things. And, and um, yeah, so it was... It was trying times, but it wasn't the only thing. Meaning like when I was through my whole childhood, there was, uh, my, my parents had uh, four kids under the age of five and we had Z-packs all the time. Like we would take antibiotics three, four, five, seven times a year. Uh, like nothing, like they were just for a regular virus. You'd just take antibiotics anyways, even though they've been shown obviously to not be helpful. Yeah, yeah, the same here. Well, it sounds like, Oh, man, I have so many questions. I want to ask, did doctors, I mean, obviously you, you said took two years. So you really had to be your own advocate because it, for a test to just say, oh, you have, you know, elevated white blood cells. I mean, you had to continue to push and seek other doctors and get second opinions over and over again, I'm sure. And, um, and how, what led you to the holistic path? Well, we, we saw over two dozen uh, medical specialists. Uh, we saw the, I mean, we were in, right around Boston, Massachusetts. And so although my, my family was not, you know, coming from a place of wealth or anything like that, we, we were able to get medical care. And so they would just move us from one doctor to the next, because when you run the typical blood work and you don't find anything wrong, I mean, they were looking for cancer. They were looking for HIV. They were looking for anything of how my immune system could be so dysfunctional. But especially back then, I mean, leaky gut wasn't even a thing. So now it's, it's on Harvard's medical website. But back again, going back 
over 20 years ago, this wasn't even a thought. There was no connection between your gut function, um, mast cells, histamines, anything in your body related to your immune system. And so um, those, those were just trying times. I was told it was all in my head. Uh, I was told we're going to see if it gets worse and then maybe there'll be a change in the blood work and then we'll be able to see. And so I just ran out of places. And again, there was no real thought around functional medicine back in the 90s. Like it's just, it was kind of like undercover. But luckily we had a neighbor and they just made a recommendation to a place in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I went to see a doctor. They were a medical doctor, but they actually were from Europe. And so they had done postdoctoral training because doctoral training in Europe, actually in Germany and Switzerland, there's a lot more functional medicine. And so that's actually where it came from in the United States, bioregulatory medicine. And luckily they ran a um, saliva-based hormones test, the stress mood and metabolism test that we, we call it. And they ran a minerals and metals, hair, hair tissue mineral analysis. And that was the start. And for the very first time, because again, I'm just a normal kid uh, who's from Medford, Massachusetts. I have no idea about my health, like literally nothing. I played sports, but I only knew about my body. And I'm introduced to this whole new world of hormones, food sensitivities, cortisol, steroid hormone pathways. And for me, this was like a new challenge because my body was decimated. I could no longer play sports. I played sports every single season. I prided myself on that and it was all taken from me. By my senior year, even before I got sick, I couldn't even um, play sports because when you take antibiotics, it also destroys a lot of your mitochondria because those are bacterial based. I had no energy left in my body. And mm -hmm. it was, uh, it was, yeah, it was a tough space, especially for you, the ego when you're 17, you know, and that you're supposed to be at the top of your game. And uh, that was not it for me at all. Of course, of course. So all of this you attribute to taking the antibiotics for three years. That stemmed everything, right? There was no, nothing else well, that you could really I mean, poor, blame Poor it. food. You know, when you look, okay. I was drinking like uh, Arizona iced teas after school and there wasn't energy drinks back then, but I was, you know, drinking whatever I wanted to. I would wake up and I would drink Hawaiian punch or Kool-Aid in the morning instead of juice. I would have cereal like Fruity Pebbles or Wheaties and there was no real um, health-based regimen. Again, I, I don't, not many people knew that back then. More and more so today, you can kind of get um, knowledge of it, but just didn't have it back then. And then I was over exercising with sports. I was uh, over stressing with school and studying for SATs and trying to get good grades and, and all of that. So yeah, it was a combination of gut and stress. Uh, those were the biggest things I would say. Sure. And then even in the things that you think you're eating healthy back then, back in the day, at least I remember they were not healthy, you know, like the lean cuisines or the this or the that. And you're thinking, wow, I'm doing myself good by eating these packaged things. And it was little, little did many of us know, you know, we were looking at the nutrition facts, not the ingredients. Um, so what was your diet? How did it change? What was your protocol? Can you share a little bit about that? Yes. Yeah, so for me, when I, again, I met with a lot of natural health practitioners as well. And, and I would actually start, so, I mean, I've, I've been to a lot of the, the big names out there, the ones that have been around for a long time. And I would actually start to make progress. That was amazing. And then I would relapse again. And it's because I would understand parts of the puzzle, but I didn't have the whole puzzle in front of me. Like I didn't have, when you flip over the puzzle and you can see the box, you can actually see what you're trying to achieve. I didn't know what I was trying to achieve. So with one practitioner, 
I would get supplements that seemed to help. But then, you know, I would do something else in my life and that would cause me to relapse. Or I'd get a really great nutrition plan and then that would help. But then, again, whatever else would happen and, and I would relapse. And so what happened was when I met my mentor, she gave me an understanding of kind of me in general, if you look at the doshas and body types, okay, so like there was a basis. Like you're going to be someone who's a little bit more of a hard charger. You don't turn your mind off as well, as easily because I had to fix my sleep. And I, I should have mentioned that earlier, but my sleep was terrible. I wouldn't fall asleep for two, three, four hours when I went to bed. I couldn't turn my mind off. So that's, it's really diff- It's an easy way to get sick and it's a really difficult way to heal if you don't fall asleep until midnight, 1 a.m. and you have to be up at 6 a.m. And especially as a teenager and you're studying, you're, again, your mind's going in, your body's going for sports. And so that had to be fixed right away. And so one of the biggest things for me is get the sleep back in order. So uh, there's two things I did for that. One is nutritional supplement based and the other is a sleep regimen. And that changed my life. And then food wise, because I know that that's the question that you asked, is I didn't have an eating regimen either, even just meal timing. So for someone who couldn't regulate their blood sugar because of the adrenal issues, I made sure to get on an eating plan which I don't do to this day, but it helped me get well. So I ate every three hours. And so that equated to about five times to six times a day. Again, it's, that's why I tell people, what you have to do to get well may be different from what you maintain in the long term. Now I use intermittent fasting. I do you know, or certain things like that that I'm able to do today. That would have made me worse 20-something years ago because of the additional stress it placed on my adrenals. I love what you said about what you have to do to get well versus now what you have to do to maintain and and live a healthy life. Because I just have a similar story where I I couldn't eat and I had to eat, you know, every hour, just a tiny quarter cup of food. So no one really does that. But that's what I had to do to get well. And so eating every three hours for some people, you know, it's not typically recommended. You need to give your digestion a break. But again, for you at that time, that was, I'm sure, key. Absolutely. I had to eat enough protein to not overwhelm my digestive system, but to stabilize my blood sugar and have that be a little bit more time released, as well as a little bit of carbs, a little bit of fat. And just like you said, and then you say, okay, well, that's working. Maybe now I can stretch it out a little further. Or you figure out which protein meals, because you're not going to do the same thing each time, are working for you. Although I will tell you, I mean, sometimes you need to eat the only the half dozen foods that you can eat. I mean, we have a lot of people in our practice that can only eat five or six foods. Okay, well, we're not going to upset their digestive system the first week, right? So they're going to eat those same foods. And then we're going to start to use antimicrobials, biofilm disruptors, get their gut working better. And then we're going to say, okay, now let's branch out into one more easily digestible food. How does that work? It's going to be our only new variable. And one of the issues I see with people in getting well is that, and this is, this is, what happened to me is you test too many new variables at once. So I would go to see two or three different practitioners. One would be doing this for supplements. One would be doing this for diet. One would be doing this for exercise or whatever it might be or meditation. And I'd start to feel well. And I'm great, but I'm taking, you know, 15 new supplements and I'm doing this diet plan and I'm doing this. So then I would stop some of the supplements and I would change the diet a little bit and then I would start to feel worse. And I had no idea what was the thing that was helping me get well? So that's when I started to keep a journal. And then that was even difficult because I'm writing all these things down. So then I just started to change one thing. 
And when I change the one thing I could say, because it doesn't happen overnight, within 21 days, am I feeling better, worse, or neutral? And if neutral, okay, I can decide to keep it. And then I can add one more new thing. And that's, so that's what we do now, again, for the worst of the worst. Uh, that's, that's how we'll make the changes. And it's also how we wean people off from whatever it might be, is that we'll say, okay, we're going to remove one thing. And again, it won't change the next week or so because you have reserves of that thing now. But within three weeks, are you feeling worse if we take it away? If not, good, then we don't need it. If you do feel worse, well, we might need a little bit of it, maybe half the dosage or full dosage. Yeah, again, that's key is to not change so many things and just do that one thing. That way you do know if it's helping or harming. So uh, just a little segue here, because you did mention intermittent fasting. That was actually one of my questions. So what is your take on intermittent fasting and is it for everyone? Well, I think it's it's hard to say there's something for everyone, but I think intermittent fasting comes the closest. So there are some people, again, with reactive hypoglycemia, and like I had back in the day. So for those people, having a little something before bed and eating within 30 minutes of upon waking is going to be best for them. But most people, especially as you get older, should take advantage of a greater level of autophagy. And just overall, every time we eat, we're creating more oxidative stress in the body. So intermittent fasting, at least as as I understand it from the literature and research, is that it's a minimum of 12 hours because we kind of get like, is it 16, is it 18? Well, it's a minimum of 12. And I just think for most people, that makes sense because everything I look at is from modern day scientific research, but then also, does it make sense with nature and Ayurvedic medicine that's been around for 6,000 years? And to me, it makes sense, right? If we're meant to be diurnal beings working on a natural circadian rhythm of going to bed a couple hours after it's dark and waking up with the sunlight, well, it makes sense. Like it gets dark around six or so and it gets light around six or so. So if we stop eating around six and we start eating at six or seven or eight in the morning, that to me makes sense. So for most people, between 12 and 16 hours per day is the sweet spot. Uh, the more, I can tell you this, I just, for from looking at tens of thousands of labs and biometrics, the intermittent, intermittent fasting is done, done wrong, and I apologize if this is like contradictory to, to other things that people are saying, but um, we've seen it in practice that you'll get more benefit from having a small meal or skipping dinner, much more benefit than actually skipping breakfast. Uh, most people are stressed in the morning, and so for a lot of people, it may simply mean not skipping breakfast or skipping dinner, which I don't, but having your dinner a little bit earlier, you'll get better sleep, your HRV will be improved, your deep sleep will be improved, your heart rate will lower, your body temperature will lower, like everything gets better, stop eating three or four hours before bed. And then you only need to go a couple hours after waking to get in, like I do, 14 hours a day. And then for other people, yeah, you can still do 16, but 16 hours might stop at 10 a.m. Now you can eat at 10 and one and five o'clock if you want. So I try not to... Um, I, I allow people to work with their diet that they want to do, but include intermittent fasting with everyone's routine, except for, again, for those like one or two people that it may not work for. Right. Yeah, that's great advice. I know there's so many benefits to intermittent fasting. And so for someone listening to, you know, you, you definitely want to maybe play around with it, see what works for you and see how you feel. Let's talk a little bit about workouts and how do you feel about someone consuming something right after a workout versus waiting for their, quote, rest and digest to, to kick back in? Because you see a lot of people, they're chugging the, the protein powders 
sometimes while they're working out. <laughs> um, and what is your take on that? If, if they should eat something right after or if they should wait? Yeah, it's a great question. So everything in my practice, and so I should just say that my background, I'm a board certified doctor of naturopathy. Um, once I got well or was working with my mentor, I went back to school, uh, got my degree. Previous to that, I was a nutritionist, a personal trainer, strength and conditioning specialist, and then I transitioned into functional medicine and naturopathy. Um, so the way that I look at the world is a little bit different because I know that not everything works for everyone all the time. And I learned that actually from doing internships overseas. I was in India and China and Sri Lanka and Europe. And I was studying these clinics and I was like, oh, this is working and this is working. Oh, it's not working for that person. Why is it not working for that person? That would always like bug me because I want to make sure that everybody gets the results. And then I would go to a TCM. I studied uh, at a traditional Chinese medicine hospital in China. And I was like, oh, these people are getting results and this person isn't. And this would happen at every clinic. And what I realized is that everybody can get results from every program. It's, you have to choose the right program for the right individual at the right time. Because sometimes it is the right program at the wrong time or sometimes the wrong individual. And so what we do is we have a truly integrative practice is that we don't have one thing that you have to do. Meaning there are foundations. So like we have a foundational digestive protocol, a foundational mold protocol, but everything can be tweaked just as we're talking about here. So one thing about the intermittent fasting is like, well, um, on a Monday, I do a 24-hour intermittent fast, but I don't do that every day, right? So it's like one, I, once I do a longer day, but I'm also doing one flex meal or cheat meal, whatever you want to call it, like a week. And so, so again, like there's give and take to everything. And that now brings me to the exercise question. So for some people, consuming a three to four to one carb to protein shake during a workout, like peri-workout nutrition, could be highly advantageous. And it's because they're more of an ectomorph body type, they're a vata body type, they produce lots of cortisol, lots of norepinephrine, and sipping on that shake actually helps, helps to calm their nervous system. So like the protein, the carbs actually be like, okay, you know, we're not dropping into hypoglycemia. We're not starving. Um, whereas others, they should like a kapha body type or endomorphic body type, they should absolutely do their workouts fasted. Like it's going to improve overall glucose levels for them. Uh, it's actually going to spike more probably dopamine for them, which is good. Whereas like the ectomorph, they have way too much of that or maybe the, you know, mesomorph body type. So, um, and then afterwards, the, the parasympathetic is a really, you know, really good point there because you're not digesting well if you're in fight or flight. And so what can you do? Well, first is if you're going to do anything, it should be liquid, like no doubt about it, or it's just going to sit in your stomach. You're not going to produce enough stomach acid, probably going to uh, ferment, and that's going to lead to all sorts then potentially bacterial-based issues. So I would say for most people, one of the best things that you can do after a weight training workout would be some light cardio. Now, again, you can end with interval sprints and that's great for your metabolism. But if you do that, then you're going to want to wait an hour or mo most likely till after your workout, like to eat. And you might want to incorporate some stretching and breathing. Going back to your breath is one of the best ways to induce the parasympathetic nervous system. And it can really be as easy as closing your eyes, stretching and breathe in for five seconds and out for seven seconds or in for three seconds and out for five. The, the out breath induces, a longer out breath induces the parasympathetic nervous system response. So the faster you do that, then the faster you can actually enjoy that meal. So hopefully, I, I, there's a, it gets really nuanced, but hopefully that was helpful. Yeah, no, for sure. It's definitely helpful. You did mention different body types. Now, how does one know what body type they are? Are there tests for that? So that, that gets more complicated for sure. Uh, but if you look at Ayurvedic medicine, they had something called the doshas, the vata, the uh, pitta, and the kapha. And in modern day psychology, actually, it started. It was called the somatotypes. And that's the ectomorph, the mesomorph, and the endomorph. And 
Um, simply put, that there are, we, can, we can look around in the world around us and we can say, oh, this person naturally has a longer, right, more oval face. They have slender shoulders. They've got thin wrists and thin ankles. They're naturally more thin. And the other uh, person might have naturally larger calves. They have more of a rounder head. They gain weight more easily. When they eat carbs, they tend to put on more body fat, which is whereas the uh, vata or the ectomorph they can eat as many carbs as they want. They don't seem to gain any weight. It's very interesting, right? They don't seem to get the type 2 diabetes and the ectomorphs, yet they get more osteoporosis, right? So there's like pros and cons to every type. And then the pitta, okay, the pitta, we have then maybe more athletic type. They build more muscle easily. However, they're more prone to, for men, losing their hair or even women as well with, with hair thinning uh, and more prone to inflammation, inflammatory-based issues. So um, the other thing is this, is that since we... We humans have been around for quite some time. We're typically not just one dosha. We're a primary dosha with a little bit of another one. And so when you look at that, it keeps us more balanced. But um, if you look into Ayurvedic medicine, there's not a blood work test uh, that would you know run this or an at-home lab, but you can actually start to assess yourself. I have a free uh, assessment on my website to look at your dosha. And it's a good first place to start. I just... I, I warn people, don't start eating for your dosha type. Don't start supplementing for your dosha type. Don't like, that's, yeah, you've got to get pretty in depth to look at these things. And you also, it goes back to the beginning of our conversation. There, if your dosha is not balanced, then you don't actually want to eat for that. You want to eat for the imbalance you have right now. So for mm -hmm. example, you could be an ectomorph who... Um, has put on weight and who has, let's say, um, low levels of hormones and uh, cortisol, whatever it might be. So you actually want to rebalance your body first before you can begin to eat then for your natural body type. If you suffer from headaches, you're not alone. One in every six people suffer and more than 8 million Americans visit their doctor for headache-related issues each year, 75% of which are women. Of course, women go through more hormonal changes each month and their moods fluctuate, which can cause migraines to the point of many unable to even function, let alone work or be the mother or wife they typically are on a daily basis. We need help. But the side effects from NSAIDs like Advil or other over-the-counter anti-inflammatories sometimes aren't worth it. But did you know that CBD has been shown time and time again, study after study, to be one of the best natural anti-inflammatories available? and no prescription is required. Ned is a brand I've been personally consuming for over two years, and one of their newer products is their Brain Blend. It not only contains full-spectrum hemp, but also botanicals to help support brain function and clarity, such as MCT, ginkgo, bacopa, Siberian ginseng, lion's mane, and lemon essential oil. I took this blend when I had a major headache and within 30 minutes, it was gone. No joke. So if you need a natural relief from headaches or just want more clarity in your brain to think and focus, I highly recommend Ned's Brain Blend. 
become the best version of yourself and get 15% off Ned products with code digest. Go to helloned.com slash digest or enter code digest at checkout to get 15% off. Thank you, Ned, for sponsoring the show and offering my listeners a natural remedy for some of life's most common health issues. Let's go um, talk about women in particular and women's workouts and how that can help balance their hormones. Just speaking from experience as well as um, just knowing other females, a lot of females, they can get into a, I don't know, bodybuilding mode, be lifting a lot of weights and then, oh, guess what? Now their period goes away and then they're wanting to regulate their hormones. And so many people have have said, man, I stopped lifting weights or stopped doing as much and doing more low intensity workouts. And, you know, I got my period back. I regulated my hormones. So what's your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and oftentimes it, it lines up with going low carb at the same time. So if we look at it, if we're going low carb, all right, I don't, I don't have an issue uh, per se with that. I just always wonder like, is this a long-term plan? Because we use low-carb plans in our practice and typically they last for 21 days. And we don't have them last longer than 21 days, 28 days maximum. And that's because we've seen on at-home lab testing that their cortisol levels, especially in the evening, begin to rise. Cortisol levels in the morning begin to fall, which means now they're waking up with more brain fog and grogginess and fatigue overall. Then at night, they can't sleep as well or they get night sweats. And then we start to see the estrogen levels either stay normal or, or go up a little bit, but progesterone levels drop. And progesterone levels start to drop because there's the aggravated stress on the body. So now we have estrogen dominance. And estrogen dominance leads to water weight gain or retention, sometimes adult-based acne, low mood, dysregulated cycle, uh, especially during the last, let's say, like five to seven days, they're going to get more acne or bloating or low mood or digestive issues. Um, and then the other part is we see thyroid start to drop. So TSH increases, and that's a sign that actually your thyroid is going lower and lower in terms of your metabolism. So now, whatever you did before in order to lose weight or transform your body, you need to eat less and exercise more, which, is, again, is not the way out of it. It's, it's worse. And what exercise does is it exacerbates that because you're adding one more stress in the body. So um, I think strength training is phenomenal for women. I think that there's a time and place for high-intensity interval training as well for women. But by going low-carb, long intermittent fasting, fasted workouts in the morning, and high-intensity interval training, that's a recipe for disaster for most women. Now, not all women. Some women will tell you that it's the best thing they ever did. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree. That might be an endomorphic kapha body type that naturally gains weight more easily and they do better on a little lower carb and more vegetables rather than higher starch. Uh, but that's a, that is a recipe for disaster for most ectomorphic or mesomorphic-based women. And it's just because the stress load is so high that that survival mode kicks in. And so we start to lower hormones and we start to lower thyroid as well. So interesting. So you would not recommend a low-carb diet for long periods of time. That's absolutely correct. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're doing a CrossFit style workout or HIIT workouts, doing that and low carb, not ideal. You can do both. I just don't think you should do both long at the same time for an extended period of time. Now, what about someone who doesn't work out? Maybe they just go on walks and they're battling SIBO, you know, and they have to go low carb. What would you, what would you tell that person? 
So they're not really doing workouts necessarily. Yeah, I think so. Again, in our digestive program too, I agree. Like we go, I wouldn't say we go low carb, but we go lower carb and we definitely go lower uh, fruit to oligo. Yeah, the FODMAP Mm -hmm. specifically. So without a doubt, you know, we do that as well. But if you're doing that along with your, uh, we do something called the CBO protocol. So it's antimicrobials, biofilm disruptors, and then in month two, we start to layer in the probiotics. We don't do that right away because in the first month, there's already bacterial overgrowth, so we don't want to add more to it. So we start to layer that in once there's some relief there. But you'll see a lot of relief within 21 days to 28 days, and then you can start to add back in those carbs. That's great advice. Now, let's talk a little bit about periods because I feel like, you know, you actually are very well educated uh, on this topic on periods and just women's hormones in general. So let's say if someone has been missing their period for maybe months, maybe years, and they want to get it back, uh, number one, um, maybe some advice to that person. And then uh, most importantly too, uh, specifically, I had a question about seed cycling. And first of all, what that does, because a lot of people don't even know what seed cycling is. Uh, So what is seed cycling, how it works, and does it work? Basically, when you look at a woman's menstrual cycle, there's two main phases to it. You could say there's three, but for the first 14 days, you're looking at more of what's called the follicular phase. So that's the building up of estrogen um, in a woman's body. So basically, when we're starting our day zero, we'll call that first day of bleeding or menstruation. From there, hormones are all low, progesterone and estrogen for the most part. So estrogen starts to take over for the first 14 days, and then a woman produces something called FSH, follicular stimulating hormone, and luteinizing hormone. And that's going to trigger or be involved with ovulation. Now, after that, around day 14, 15 or so of a woman's cycle, there's the luteal phase. And that's supposed to be uh, higher levels of progesterone rather than estrogen. So what happens is most women are experiencing infertility, not due to low levels of estrogen, not even due to high levels of estrogen. It's due to low levels of progesterone. This is something that is well understood, but not treated for very well in conventional medicine. I know that there's IVF treatments, et cetera, but it never addresses the underlying root cause as to why a woman has low levels of progesterone in the first place. And it goes back to essentially stress in the body. Now, the stress could be gut issues. It could be environmental. It could be mold. It could be uh, heavy metals. It could be hard workouts, low carb. It could be any of these things relationship, school. But whatever it is, there's an increase in sympathetic nervous system tone. So basically, that's fight or flight. When fight or flight increases, it decreases progesterone as cortisol, the stress hormone, increases. Whenever you have this, then you have what's called an imbalance between estrogen and progesterone. And it's a dead giveaway for most women because during the last seven days or so of their cycle, if they even have a cycle, Uh, But they may notice it by symptoms alone. There'll be lower mood, more tired, more bloating, more water retention, sometimes acne. So you said low levels of progesterone equals infertility or is, is a lot of what infertility is from? Well, and that's because you will lose your menstrual cycle for lower levels of progesterone or it will be dysregulated. So it might go 
24 days one month, it might go 33 days another month. And it's almost all predicated on progesterone. And also, if we look at fertility, and, and there's a lot of great new fertility-based um, apps and, and cycle-based you know, software, really look into this because the truth is that your peak fertility dates are around days 19, 20, or 21 of your cycle. That's when progesterone is going to be its highest. Now, again, you conception could happen before that or maybe a little after that, but there is a small window. And the issue is, is that when we run a, a test, it's called the stress mood and metabolism test, we're actually looking at what's your progesterone on day 19? Because if it's not an excess of estrogen, we use a specific ratio, it's just called uh, estradiol to progesterone ratio, then there's almost no likelihood that you are going to get pregnant. Yeah, so basically stress can cause infertility. Is that basically what I'm hearing? That's right. It's the number one factor in infertility. And I would say this, that the stress doesn't have to just be work-life relationships. It's actually to do with diet, gut health, heavy metals, toxicities, uh, the whole low-carb thing, all of that together. And so what we always do, and we do a lot of work with infertility, is we let women know about six months, if possible, six months before you're looking to conceive, we want to go through gut health protocols. We want to go through heavy metal protocols. We want to get your body as healthy as humanly possible before you do decide to conceive. And then there won't be as much pressure on you as well. Yeah, no, that's great advice for sure. So if you are trying to conceive and get pregnant, definitely start that process now as opposed to you know, the, the month you, you're trying to get pregnant, right? Um, so what if someone has low levels of progesterone, would you recommend progesterone cream or what, what would you tell that person? It's, I mean, there's always, or there's always the, the temporary fix, right? So you could use progesterone cream, um, or you could use an herbal, uh, progesterone based supplement, but it's almost like going low carb, for weight loss or for digestive issues. So there are specific supplements that help both estrogen and progesterone, and some are much more prone to helping progesterone alone. And so when we look at a progesterone booster, we'd look at something like a chased tree berry, or we would look at something like wild yam. And uh, some of those actually can be, again, good for estrogen, but there's about a half dozen that are very specific that are great for boosting progesterone. The only caution, and so we use those. Of course, they're at our disposal. They've been used by TCM and Ayurvedic medicine for over 5,000 years. But in the only hesitation I have is that, let's say that you are, let's say that you're 200 pounds overweight. Obviously, that's going to short lifespan, right? So we could do something like, bypass surgery and you could lose 100 pounds, 200 pounds. But the thing is, you never figure it out and learned how you gain the 200 pounds. And although it's not as extreme, I want women to know how they ended up with low progesterone. You know, was it eating foods that they're very sensitive to? Isn't there an autoimmune issue that they don't know about? Is there is there real trauma, you know, that they they do need to address? And so, you know, that and the reason why that's important is I have an 8 and 10-year-old daughter and I just know that you know, their mom, uh, myself, uh, both parents, whoever it might be, you want to get yourself as healthy as possible for your children as well. Not just because you're going to be bringing this life into the world and that's going to, that's going to require a lot of you during those, 
you know, 40 weeks, but also afterwards too. And if it's an issue with high levels of cortisol or depleted burnt out levels of cortisol, you're going to want to repair your body first. It's just, it's going to make a lot more sense in the long run. And so whether it's high cholesterol, high blood pressure, low progesterone, let's use the compounds if needed, but only in the short term while we're working on the underlying deeper root causes. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more question about the whole seed cycling. Now, do pumpkin seeds stop your your cycle? That's like a something I've heard. I don't know if it's true. That's interesting. No, so and, and I apologize. I didn't answer um, seed cycling. So seed cycling is sesame seeds and sunflower seeds, one tablespoon of each for the first fourteen days. And the reason why you choose sesame and you choose sunflower is that they're more um, estrogenic. So the qualities of those are going to help produce more estrogen. And then when we're looking at the, uh, I apologize, if we're looking at the first phase of seed cycling, we're going to be using flax seeds and we're going to be using pumpkin seeds. And we're doing one tablespoon of each. And the reason why people may say that pumpkin seeds seeds could stop your cycle is because the real reason that women lose their cycle in the first place is lack of progesterone, like we were just saying. saying. And sunflower seeds and sesame seeds help to boost the progesterone levels. So if you keep taking pumpkin seeds during the whole cycle, you may keep producing more and more estrogen, same with flax seeds, but less of progesterone, which is really what women need. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Hopefully I didn't, I didn't confuse everybody out there with that, but there is some truth to that only because progesterone is what most women lack rather than estrogen. Okay, right. Yeah, I know a lot of, of women have higher amounts of estrogen than progesterone. So just to recap, tahini, um, not tahini, excuse me, uh, sesame seeds and sunflower seeds promote progesterone. So day one of your cycle, so basically, let's say um, first or first day of menstruation, we usually call that day zero, but we'll call it day one for right now. So until day 14, you're going to take one scoop of flax seeds and one scoop of pumpkin seeds, and you're going to mix them in your smoothie every day, or you're just going to add them to oatmeal or whatever it is that you enjoy. And when you say scoop, one tablespoon? Mm-hmm. Or, okay. One tablespoon of each, exactly. Okay. <clears throat> now, you can do a little bit more, but you really want to keep the ratio the same. And so one tablespoon is plenty. You could obviously start with one teaspoon of each if you're not used to using seeds at all because maybe they do affect your digestion, right? Maybe you're uh, not doing well with lectins, et cetera. And then once day 14 hits, that's the last day of your flax seeds and pumpkin seeds. And now we're into your luteal phase, which we spoke about before. This is now estrogen levels stay pretty normal. There's little ups and downs, but progesterone should start to increase. And sunflower seeds, so one tablespoon, and one tablespoon of sesame seeds um, would be for the next 14 days until you get your uh, period, until menstruation begins. And then you would start it over again. Now, have I seen this be successful? I have in low-level cases, meaning like there's a little dysfunction, but not a lot of dysfunction. And that can help to balance those, those levels as well. And some women, they choose just to do the sesame and sunflower seeds during the last 14 days and just disregard the flax and the pumpkin because they don't really have issues with estrogen production. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question. If someone just has issues with progesterone production, maybe they should just you know, do what you exactly just said. Um, now, tahini and sunflower seed butter, if it is just pure one ingredient, can 
someone do that instead if they have a hard time digesting seeds, if they have diverticulitis, you know, things like that. Absolutely. And I typically recommend blending them anyways. Um, there, there's one, there's basically one big downside and that's the oxidation of nuts and seeds when you do blend them. But you know, like it's tough to be perfect in life, right? So it's like we do the best that we can and that's always how I look at it. And so I think it is far more palatable for most people to do a sun butter uh, or to do a, a natural, of course, sun butter where there's one ingredient and same with tahini or, or sesame. And so I think that that's totally fine. And we were, you know, we do smoothies in our practice just because it's, it's easy to do and you can put in like the supplements that you need. People don't need to do that. Um, they can make an old school like oatmeal or muesli type thing if they chose to, if they don't have issues with oats and grains. Um, but it's really the best that you can do is just what you want to do and mixing them in is going to be the easiest way to do it. It's a good first place to start. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that during those last 14 days of a woman's cycle, she should also be increasing her cruciferous vegetables, her broccoli and her cauliflowers and, and things like that because they actually help to remove uh, estrogen from the body faster through phase two detoxification. Um, and they help bind it up in the intestines as well. So that's really important. Very good. Great tip. Now, just a quick question. Moving on to UTIs. At the beginning, we both talked about how horrible antibiotics can be for one's health. You probably know the best of anyone. And so that's typically what a doctor prescribes, UTI antibiotics. And if you don't address a UTI, it can be very serious and get really bad. So a few questions. For someone that is getting chronic UTIs, what can they do to stop it? And then what can they do as a preventative? Symptom, symptomatically, you, we do need to get rid of it, right? That's really important. And we need to make sure it doesn't progress where it would be then a kidney-based infection. And I think it's really important to understand the difference because a kidney infection is very serious. And so there's going to come a time and a place where you're going to want to speak to your medical doctor, of course. And on this show, we're not giving any medical advice or medical treatment plans. Now, um, symptomatically, we've been using this for well over a decade and it gets amazing results. And so, uh, again, on my website, I open source everything. I tell you exactly what we use. I tell you the exact ingredients. I tell you exactly the dosage because I always believe in paying things forward. And I also, I, I was shared a number many, many years ago, but it's like, there's like, 100,000 to 150,000 natural health practitioners right now in the United States. And there's 3 billion people online. And it's like, there's no way that we can even help all the people that need help out there. So it's really, really important we look at this. So I know that this works just because we've, we've used it so many times and 70% of our practice is women. So we use um, D-mannose, we use apple cider vinegar, we use ascorbic acid, not any other type of vitamin C, and I can explain why in a moment. Um, and uh, we use something called citricidal drops, uh, but you could use grapefruit seed extract as well. Not grape seed, but grapefruit seed extract. And so uh, let me, let's go through why this works because there should always be a why you're doing something. So first of all, we want to acidify the urine and we want to acidify it because <clears throat> sometimes the environment is too alkaline. And I know that when we're talking about um, acid and base, and we're talking about the blood, and people always get confused, like, oh, you can't alkalize your blood, and we're not trying to, right? The blood stays at a pH of around 7.356, and it only goes down to like 7.2 or up to 7.4. It's very little fluctuation, or we wouldn't be here, right? And so that's different, though, inside of the bladder-based tissue, and it's different inside of the stomach mucosa, and it's different inside of the muscle tissue. But 
What we want to do is make sure by the time that the urine is in the bladder, moving through the kidneys to the bladder, <clears throat> that it's low, it's more acidic. And so bacteria can't grow because what's happened with the urinary tract infection is bacteria is starting to grow. We can, we can talk about um, how sexual intercourse affects that as well, if you'd like, because we use methodologies for that too. Um, but essentially, the apple cider vinegar is really great at providing a balancing proper pH. So we just do one tablespoon in eight ounces of water, Bragg's apple cider vinegar or your favorite, you know, all natural unprocessed brand. And then we use... Um, a half a gram to one gram of ascorbic acid. You can take capsules or you can use ascorbic acid. Now, ascorbic acid is more acidic. And we actually want that over an alkalizing vitamin C because we're looking for the acidity to kill the bacteria and keep it at a low pH. Then what we do is we use uh, D-mannose. And D-mannose is essentially the uh, nutrient. It's uh, from, you, you think of it like as a simple sugar, but it's not a sugar, from cranberry juice, right? So like that's why people drink cranberry juice. You're really drinking cranberry for the D-mannose. So the D-mannose, what it does is it helps unhook the bacteria from the bladder wall. And then after that, the citricidal comes in and kills the bacteria. So again, I'm not saying this is in replacement of antibiotics for UTI, but what I'm saying is this typically does the trick and you use it for two days after the UTI is gone to make sure it's gone. So typically you need to do this for 72 hours. Um, you drink it every three to four hours and it works very, very well. But then it comes down to why'd you get the UTI in the first place, right? So sometimes it's... Um, from sexual intercourse. And sometimes, and, and oftentimes, that is because a woman's vaginal flora can match the same issues she's having with SIBO. So we've noticed in our practice, many women with SIBO have bacterial vaginosis <clears throat> or they have yeast overgrowth. And that's because there is a sharing of bacteria with the intestinal flora as there is with the vaginal flora. And so if you do not have slightly acidic flora, meaning terrain in the small intestine, which is the first 20 feet of intestine, essentially, um, you are going to allow for bacteria to grow, which is what we call small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. So we don't want that, right? We want a slightly acidic environment, around a 7 for a pH. And then for a woman's vaginal flora, that should also be acidic. And if it's not, you're going to see more urinary tract infections, you're going to see more bacterial vaginosis, you're going to see more yeast infections as well. So in that case, locally, first we work on the digestive issues, but I know at that moment we need to fix and work on the bacterial vaginosis, BV, or the yeast infections. So we will use boric acid suppositories, uh, or we will use a clove of garlic, uh, unpeeled, depending on what a woman chooses to do. And we only need to do that for a day or two. Like that's very, very potent, and that's going to kill a lot of bacteria there. And then we'll just use a uh, vaginal suppository of an acidophilus-based strain. Sometimes it's a multi-strain or sometimes it's just lactobacillus acidophilus. Okay, wait, uh, pa- hold on, pause for a second. Are you telling me that sometimes people put a clove of garlic up their vagina? Yes, yes, I do. Wow, okay. No. Well, you know what? If desperate, desperate, desperate times, man, <laughs> call for desperate well, measures. I would say this too, look up the, because again, I can't tell you to do this, but look up strep B and look up garlic, garlic suppository. And so, because there's a lot of women that are worried about strep B while going to give birth and they don't want to take antibiotics. And so you can actually take a look at the research with garlic used for three to five days or so before delivery. I'm not second guessing you here. I'm just... 
No, no, like, I, I, I like it. I, I don't. You mind, know, it's uh, opening up my eyes here. When I, I actually had a, a really bad UTI just back in November, and what I was taking was uh, actually D-manos and garlic uh, pills and the grapefruit seed extract, and then also uva ursi. Yes, that's excellent as well. Okay, and what does that do? Uva ursi, just like garlic, um, garlic's a little bit more potent, believe it or not, but there's, so garlic is different when swallowed in a capsule. Uh, there's a brand called, I don't know if you have a favorite brand, but there's a brand called Kyolic that's been doing aged garlic for many, many years. Like I'm familiar, like, yeah. Yeah, like 20, 30 years. I mean, they're one of the originals. And they have different brands that are sometimes higher in lecithin, uh, great for cholesterol, can be great for blood pressure. Again, not giving any medical advice. Um, not as effective, I found, uh, versus actually swallowing the whole clove, which contains all the natural enzymes and um, other more powerful antimicrobials. So aged garlic capsules, great for cholesterol, high blood pressure, even blood sugar, glucose, those types of things. But if you're looking to kill parasites or bacteria in the gut, you're swallowing the whole clove. Now you can crush it first and then swallow it. The, the, and again, it's effective. Um, but what I want to share with people is this. If you do have SIBO or you do have yeast overgrowth, it is also a fermentable food and it could absolutely cause uh, bloating and gas. So we don't use that as part of our digestive protocol until like six weeks in. Um, you could start to use those. What about someone, again, if they have chronic UTIs, right? Uh, could someone take these supplements as a um, preventative or is it not recommended to continually take them? So it all comes back to that root cause. <clears throat> I, would make, I want to make sure that this person gets well. And so for them, I'd be looking at what is the digestive issue and gut flora imbalance that they most likely have or immune imbalance that's allowing for this recurrent UTI. And then I would work locally, so vaginally, and then I would work systemically, which is intestinally. So I don't know if you have a specific protocol. Um, I know that you have amazing diet plans, nutrition plans and all that, so they could use that. Um, we use Again, ours is called the CBO protocol, and it, it, it addresses things at a root cause level. So let's say you're someone like me. When I, I mean, I, I went for an endoscopy with a gastroenterologist. I had yeast growing through my stomach up my esophagus. That's how bad it was from taking antibiotics. Because antibiotics kill bacteria, but they then leave lots of opening for yeast to grow. So I had candida, systemic candida. And they had never seen anything like it. I mean, they have, I had the photos and showing it growing up and it, it looks like fungus and that, that's what it looks like. And so um, for me, I needed something stronger and I also had massive biofilms built up. And so that's why I did a lot of great gut protocols in my 20s and like some work better than others, but I never really got well. And then I addressed the biofilms and I got then to the stuff that was under it. And so biofilms basically is like a thin layer of gel fiber space tissue that's protecting the parasites, the yeast and the bacteria, and it's loaded with heavy metals oftentimes. So when you address that, then you can actually get at the actual soil of the garden, right? Your terrain to turn that over. And that's what we need to do. And then intestinal permeability is a big part of UTIs. So let's say that you're eating every day and you're spilling proteins and bacteria from your gut. Well, that's being filtered by your liver, hopefully. Some of it certainly by your kidneys, and it can end up in the bladder. Uh, we see it oftentimes with clostridia-based bacteria, not just C. diff, but with clostridia bacteria. 
And so we'd want to work on removing that. And women can run a, what's called a candida metabolic and vitamins test or bacteria and parasite stool test and actually look at the gut issues that they may have. And if you really want like precise protocol, these, this at-home lab testing is, is really the, the wave of the future of natural health. Yeah. Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head too, is just the gut is basically, it's the core of everything almost. And if you have leaky gut, then yeah, a lot of things are going to seep out that you don't want. And then the bad stuff is going to seep in that you know don't want in. And so like you were saying, you got to get to the root cause. And that maybe could be why you're having UTIs in the first place. So it's better to obviously do that than to just continue to put a Band-Aid on it. 100%. I understand that people want to get rid of their symptoms and, and I totally agree. But what you don't want to do is get rid of your symptoms and never know why you had them in the first place or mask them and allow them to just simply represent themselves in a different way. And so right now, you know, people have high, they have high cholesterol and they go on a statin. Okay. Well, then three years later, they end up with high blood pressure. And then three years later after that, they end up with type 2 diabetes. And now they basically have metabolic syndrome, right? And they never addressed why they had an imbalance in the first place. And I'm just kind of picking on cholesterol now, but it could be anything. I mean, it could literally be estrogen dominance like we spoke about. Or for men, like why do you have low testosterone in your 40s? Like that shouldn't happen. I know we're kind of normalizing that now, but men shouldn't have low testosterone in their 40s. Like that that shouldn't happen until mid-60s or later. And so... Yes, you can go on hormone replacement therapy. The problem is though, again, you never found out why you had low testosterone. So my goal is to simply share that with people so that if their goal is to live a long, healthy life, that we're doing that. We're not just saying, oh, we have inflammation, so we need to squelch the inflammation or wherever, whatever it's showing up as, but actually figure out, well, what caused the inflammation in the first place? And as you alluded to, so often it is stemming from the gut because that's where the majority of our uh, immune system does live and, and uh, lie. Yeah, yeah. And now you mentioned testing. So where can people go and get tested at home lab testing? I know you have something that's called Equal Life. Is that correct? Yes. So Equal Life is the representation of our Boston-based practice <clears throat> that we had for many, many years. So we had that practice until 2019, and we had seen well over a quarter of a million people. We were doing 20,000 appointments a year, um, and we loved it, but we had a six-month waiting list, and uh, we were seeing people from all over. But thankfully, and, and it just happened like a year or so before you know the pandemic, we brought everything online virtually. So our goal, though, was to be able to teach more practitioners, teach more people so they could use these protocols with their clients as well, and just families and loved ones too. We, we actually certify health coaches. And um, that's where all the lab testing is. So these are all at-home lab tests. Uh, no blood work needs to be drawn. It's simply a saliva sample, sample urine sample, stool sample, hair sample, or um, a finger prick, depending on what level of uh, fluid we need. So if you're looking at thyroid or vitamin D, well, that needs to be a blood drop right from the finger. But if it's a um, gut-based issue, we're going to do a stool sample or we're going to do the urine-based sample. And so, yeah, that's all there. And then, of course, the protocols are, are there as well at Equal Life. I love it. Thank you so much. Well, uh, Dr. Cabral, I just want to thank you again for being on here. And where can people find you? Pimp yourself out. What's your social media? My, my main website is stephencabral.com and it's Stephen with a PH. 
From there, you can find my book, The Rain Barrel Effect. You can find my podcast, The Cabral Concepts. Uh, and you'll find my Instagram there as well, just Stephen Cabral. So I appreciate you having me on. This was great. A lot of great questions that I often don't get the chance to answer. So thank you so much. And thank you for everything you do for the community and, and social media. You have such an amazing following and uh, you're doing great work. Thank you so much, Stephen. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to this episode of Digest This. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review in your podcast app to let us know. If you're ever wondering how you can support me and this podcast, sharing it with your friends and family is the best way. This is a resonant media production produced by Drake Peterson and edited by Chris McComb. To email the show, message us at digestthispod at gmail.com. See you next time. The content of this show is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for individual medical and mental health advice and does not constitute a provider-patient relationship. As always, talk to your doctor or health team first. Looking to build a more robust foundation in your health and well-being? From the producer of Digest This comes one of the most popular alternative health shows on Apple Podcasts, The Dr. Tina Show. Dr. Tina Moore is a naturopathic physician and chiropractor, traditionally and alternatively trained in science and medicine. The show features exclusive interviews with experts such as Sean Stevenson, Mike Mutzel, Mark Groves, and even solo episodes covering metabolic health, pharmaceuticals, chronic diseases, long-hauler syndrome, and pain management. Dr. Tina delivers the information in a no-nonsense, real-world style, and she has the science to back it up. The Dr. Tina Show is edgy, entertaining, and informative. Every episode will leave you with a new pearl of health wisdom to expand your knowledge base. When you're empowered, you can do better for yourself, your family, and your community. Resilience is the name of the game, and Dr. Tina is here to guide you on your way. Listen to The Dr. Tina Show today on your favorite podcast app. New episodes every Wednesday. Produced by Drake Peterson and Resident Media.